0: Good morning, family of God. I would like to pray one more time, so if you would bow your heads with me, and I want to ask for the Holy Spirit's help as we give our attention to his word this morning. Our Father, we just thank you so much for loving us. We thank you for sending Jesus to save us. We thank you for the Lord's Supper that we just celebrated, reminding us of the cross of Christ and pointing us forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb when we get to feast in your presence in a new creation. We worship you. We just want to be still for a moment right now and compose our souls in your presence and ask for you to be our teacher. Holy Spirit, teach us this morning. Give us eyes to see Jesus, ears to hear your word, minds to be attentive and understand. And uh, we want to make our prayer what the disciples said in this verse. Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. Pray that in the next few minutes as we reflect on these scriptures, that you would be forming us to be a people who commune with you very deeply in our daily lives of prayer. Forgive our sins. Give us grace. We need you now and always in Christ's name. Amen. First one of our text says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And if you've been with us over the last. Months as we've been studying the Gospel of Luke, this should not surprise you because in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is always praying. He was a man of great prayer, and Luke's Gospel has drawn our attention to this repeatedly. I'm just going to read to you a few of the verses that have emphasized Jesus praying. You can just listen and remember. In chapter 5, verse 16, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we read, But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. And when it said he would do this, it was describing this is something Jesus didn't just do once that he did regularly. It was his habit to get alone in a desolate place by himself to spend time talking to his father in prayer. Then in chapter six, verse 12, we read right before Jesus called the twelve to follow him and have a special relationship with him. Chapter six, verse 12 said in these days, he that is Jesus went out to the mountain to pray And all night he continued in prayer to God. Frequently, the gospel has indicated that he would spend extended periods of time, hours and hours on end, doing nothing but praying. In this case, all night long. Then in chapter nine, verse 18, we read this. Now, it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And if you were here Several weeks ago, you'll remember this ended up being a very important moment in which the disciples begin to really reckon with the identity of Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God. But it began with Jesus praying. His whole ministry, we have found, grows out of his life of prayer. And then a little bit later in chapter nine, verse twenty eight. We read about the story of the transfiguration in which the glory of Jesus was revealed in a fresh way. He started shining like lightning. But listen to how it began. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Or just a few weeks ago, in chapter 10, verse 21, we read this passage. It said, in the same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. And this beautiful passage, Jesus, the Son of God, is praying. Everybody say the Son. And it says he's rejoicing in the Holy Spirit. Everybody say Holy Spirit. And he's talking to his father. He says, I thank you, Father. So everybody say Father. And this passage, we see all three persons of the Trinity. I'm going to come back to that thought in a moment. Or we could think about the end of the gospel, Luke chapter 22. I'm not going to read verses 39 through 45, but it's a scene in which Jesus, right before his crucifixion, goes to a garden to pray. And it says it was his custom to come there. He would frequently come to spend extended periods of time in prayer. Now, the point I'm just trying to make right now is that Jesus was always praying. He was constantly praying. He was constantly Talking to his father, spending time with his father and his ministry was was continuing to flow out of that. Every time there was a significant move forward in his ministry, we find him praying. And at the beginning of our reflections on Luke chapter 11, verses one through four, I'm drawing our attention to this fact because. The constant prayer of Jesus. Teaches us something very important about God and something very important about what it means for us to be human beings. It's important as it's important as we're reading the Gospels to remember who Jesus is. He is the God man. He is the eternal son of the father, the eternal word of the Lord, fully God. But now he has become flesh and Dwelt among us so that he is also fully and really a human being, which means when we look at Jesus, we're getting two things revealed to us at the same time. Jesus is constantly revealing us to us who God is and what God is like. And at the same time, he's showing us what authentic, real human life is like. He's the prototype of real humanity. The prayers of Jesus Shows us something about God. Namely, it's like a, the praying life of Jesus is like a little window giving us a glimpse into the reality that God eternally exists as the communication of love and life and joy between the persons of the Trinity. Everybody say Trinity. God is eternally Father, Son and Holy Spirit. He is eternally the communication, the giving and taking of life. Love and joy. And amazingly, when we see Jesus, God at prayer, this is God talking to God. And we read a few moments ago, God rejoicing in God, talking to God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're being given a glimpse of the loving relationship that constitutes the being of God from all eternity. But we're also being shown something about what it means to be human. Because Jesus is not only God. God. He's the image of God. He's the perfect human being, the prototype of authentic humanity. And what we see very simply is that to be fully alive as a human being is to pray. To be fully alive as a human being is to pray. A prayerless life is a subhuman life. Listen, animals... Are wonderful. Any animal lovers in the room? I saw a lot of hands going up. We love animals. Thank God for animals. Uh, I like dogs. Who likes dogs? Any horse people? Anybody like horses? Cats? Any rat people? We got one rat person in the back. Um, Animals are glorious, but I'm pretty sure dogs don't pray. Horses don't pray. They glorify God in their own way. But if we want to think about what does it mean to be the image of God, human beings created in the image of God, it means many things. It means that we're representatives of God who have a job from God to steward the earth as vice regents. He's the king over all creation and we serve him. But one of the things that it means to be a human being made in the image of God is that we and the angels are distinct from the rest of creation in our capacity To hear from and respond to God and have relationship with him. So that if you're wrestling with, why am I here? What am I made for? What does it mean to be human? The answer at its core is you're made to know God. You're made to have a relationship with God. Prayer is one of the deepest expressions of what does it mean to be an authentic, flourishing human being. So Jesus, the true human, is here. And he's praying. He's always praying. We learn to live as we pray. We learn to love as we pray. We begin to experience the sacred dignity to be of what it means to be an image bearer of God as we pray. Jesus was constantly praying, and his disciples were impressed with his prayer life. It made such an impression on them that we find one of them at the end of verse one coming to him and saying, Lord. Teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Remember, many of the disciples of Jesus had previously been disciples of John. They knew what John said about prayer. They had heard from him, but they said there's something more we need to learn from Jesus. He's our real teacher. He's our real master. Verse two says, and he said to them, when you pray, say, and then he gives us this famous prayer. Let me make a few observations about the latter half of verse one and verse two before we dive into the prayer. When they say, Lord, teach us to pray. Part of what that means is, Lord, teach us to be truly human. Teach us to be truly human. Teach us what it means to live as authentic human beings. We see in you, Jesus Something real, something powerful, a communion with God that we want for ourselves. Teach us to know God. Church, do you want to know God? And the, th- the thing about prayer is. Little children can do it. I mean, sometimes the most moving prayers that I've heard are from little kids. Listen, you see here so simple and full of faith. And yet you can be a Christian for 50 years and still feel like you need to learn how to pray. There's always more to learn. The ones who are going to learn are the ones who have the humble, are humble of heart like this disciple. So I need a testimony. Anybody want to learn more how to pray today from Jesus? So that's the place that we are. And thank God that this disciple asked this question because Jesus re- does it. He responds. And when he says, when you pray, here's another observation. The word you there in Greek is plural. So... In English, in Oklahoma, in English, this is y'all. Everybody say y'all when y'all pray. So he's talking to them as community. And when he gives them the prayer, they're talking in first person, plural. Give us our daily bread, meaning prayer is not just an individual thing. What Jesus is after is shaping a praying community. He wants the church as community to be a praying people. And he gives them this prayer. Sometimes Christians call it the Lord's Prayer because it was taught by the Lord Jesus. Sometimes Christians call it uh, the Disciples Prayer because actually this is a prayer he gave to us as disciples to pray. This isn't a prayer that Jesus would have prayed in its fullness because it involves confession of sin and Jesus never sinned. But Jesus, the Lord, gave it to us as a prayer to be at the center of our discipleship. Often Christians will refer to it as the Our Father Based on the first two words in, in the version we find in Matthew chapter 6, or simply as the model prayer. Because this is a prayer that Christians, uh, from the beginning of the church have understood to be a kind of pattern or model which shapes all Christian praying. So we can recite this prayer word for word. That's a good thing to do. I would encourage you to say this prayer, to say these very words daily. We can do it individually, or we can say it all together. When we say, All these hours as individuals, it reminds us that even if we're in our prayer closet by ourselves, we're still praying as a member of the body of Christ. We're still a part of a community. But when we're praying other things, this prayer is still the model. It's still the pattern which shapes how we think about Christian prayer in general. So now let's take a moment to walk through the prayer little by little. And see what Jesus is teaching us about how to pray. The first word of the prayer is Father, everybody say father. Now, you may have noticed that this version that you read in Luke's gospel is a little bit different than what may be more familiar to you. If you go look at Matthew chapter six, we see Jesus teaching this prayer with a few slight variations. Jesus was an itinerant teacher who was he spoke in a lot of different towns every day and probably taught uh, the same thing with slight variations in different settings all the time. So, Probably he gave this prayer a variety of times with slight variations. I'm just going to focus on the version that we have right here in Luke today. But you can go get the fuller version with some added phrases in Luke and Matthew chapter six. But he begins here by saying, Father. Father, before we start making any requests of God in our prayers, we have to pause to remember who he is. And what our relationship with him is about. And really this word father is the basis for everything that follows. Jesus is continually teaching his disciples to know God as our father. What does this word mean? Well, it shows us that the God who we're talking to, he loves us as his children. He cares for us. He is committed to our good. He protects us. He provides for us. We have a secure relationship with him, a covenant relationship with him. By saying Father at the beginning of our prayer, we're, we're pausing to think about the character of God. He's compassionate. He's loving. But we're also... Pausing to remember this special relationship with God that we enjoy because of Jesus. If you're a Christian, then in a unique way, now you can talk to God as father. There are verses that talk about God as being fatherly in his disposition to all of creation. After all, he made everything and he cares for all of his creation. He provides for all of his creation. But when Christians say father, we're saying it in a unique way. And special way because jesus is the unique eternally begotten son of god And if you have trusted in jesus you're united with him All right, I need you to help me do a visual illustration Everybody take your hands like this and put them together and say in jesus in paul's letters He keeps talking about christians being in jesus or in christ and when you are in jesus you're united to him like that that means that all of the characteristics of the relationship between God, the father and God, the son, Jesus Christ now are coming to characterize your relationship with God, since he is the loving father of Jesus. Now he's your loving father in a new way. You've been adopted into a new family and you're secure in that relationship with him. We say father with confidence because of what Jesus did for us and what Jesus promised to us. And because of our union with Jesus, we can say father because Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose again. Now, let's just acknowledge something um, that probably as Christians, all of us have struggled with, but we might tend to think that other people don't struggle with. I'm going to make a confession. Sometimes I get on my knees to pray and I start having all sorts of feelings and thoughts along the lines of I'm too much of a sinner to pray. Anybody else want to admit that you've been there? You ever got on your knees and thought, man, God probably hears other people's prayers, but I'm too messed up. He doesn't want to hear me. This word father is given us by Jesus and by the Holy Spirit, as we'll see in a second, to help us fight back against that feeling. When you pray, it's important to remember your relationship with God is not based on how well you performed recently. It's based on the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, let me give you just two verses of scripture that can help you with this. So important. First one is Galatians chapter four. I'm going to read you a few verses in Galatians chapter four. I don't they're not on your screen. So you can follow along in your Bible or you can just listen and jot down the reference to study later this week. But I'm going to start reading in verse four. Let me tell you what Paul said. He said, but when the right time came, God sent his son born of a woman subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom. For us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. Now, there's so much going on in those verses, Galatians four, four through seven. I don't have time to unpack it all. You can study this week, but let me just summarize a few of the really powerful things uh, Paul is saying here, which which can help us understand what Jesus is teaching us back in Luke 11. He's saying this apart from Jesus, we would all be slaves, actually in several different ways. We would be slaves to sin, unable to stop doing wrong things. And because slaves to sin... We would also be slaves to death and the fear of death, terrified to die and face judgment. And because slaves to sin and to death and to the fear of death, we would also be slaves to the devil. He would have jurisdiction in our lives to manipulate us and cause all kinds of problems. And we uh, would be easily manipulated. And Paul says here slaves to the law. And again, there's a lot of complicated stuff going on in Galatians, but very simply, Paul has taught the law of God. The commandments of God are good. They're good. They're beautiful. They teach us the way of justice. But the problem is uh, none of us is capable on our own, in our own strength of keeping the law. So when we run into God's commandments, what they end up doing is accusing us and showing us how messed up we are. But they don't have the power to change our hearts. So he was saying we were slaves to sin, to Satan, to death. And we were ultimately slaves to the law because when we heard it, we just kept we were under condemnation and it couldn't change our hearts. But now Jesus has done something for us that we could never do for ourselves and that even the law, the commandments of God couldn't do for us because Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. And then died on the cross in our place, taking the punishment you deserve and I deserve. And then rose victoriously from the grave, conquering sin and Satan and death. Isn't Jesus Jesus awesome, church family? And what Paul says is, now, if you trust in Jesus, you are in Christ. You're in him, which means you are no longer a slave. So everybody say, not a slave. You're not a slave to any of those things. He mentions the law here, but elsewhere he's going to talk about all the other stuff. You're not a slave to sin. You're not a slave to Satan. You're not a slave to death or the fear of death. And you're certainly not a slave to the law. Now you're free. You're an adopted child of God. You're a son of God or a daughter of God in Christ. And part of what that means is you've got a new status, a new identity. God loves you as your father. Part of what it means is God has sent the Holy Spirit to live inside of you. And what the Holy Spirit is doing inside of you is crying out, Father, Abba, Father. In other words, he's working in your heart and your spirit to teach you that God loves you. And through Christ, your relationship with God is secure by grace. Which means when you get on your knees to pray and you start thinking, I'm too much of a sinner. I'm too broken. I've got to get my life right before God will hear me. God loves other people, but he couldn't really love me. He must be angry with me. I feel like he's distant. All those thoughts. Start coming in your head. They didn't come from God. They could come from our own messed up psychology, but also um, the devil's very interested in keeping us thinking that way. Pop quiz. Do you think the devil wants you to pray? Especially, do you think he wants you to pray believing that God loves you and hears your prayers by grace? <laughs> Definitely not. So the devil is working hard to keep you stuck in that place, but the Holy Spirit... Is saying, don't listen to the devil, listen to the gospel. Don't listen to the devil, listen to the gospel. You are daughter of God. You are son of God by grace. God is your father, not because you earned it, but because Jesus earned it. One more scripture. In chapter 15 of Luke, four chapters to the right. Jesus is going to tell a very famous and powerful parable which we often refer to as the parable of the prodigal son. It's actually a parable of two prodigal sons who both rebel against their father in different ways. They both have different ways of not being at home in their father's house. But one of them famously runs off and takes his father's wealth and squanders it selfishly and then ends up desperate and destitute and uh, taking care of pigs and then has the thought, if I go back to my father's house, I know I don't deserve to be a son anymore, but maybe he'll let me be like one of the hired servants. And if I beg, maybe he'll let me back. You remember this story, church? And I want to read you just a part of the story. Jesus tells this story to teach us about the nature of the kingdom of God and the nature of the love of our father for his children. And I just want to read you a few verses about when that rebellious son comes home. This is the son, again, who has dishonored, disrespected his father's. Living a foolish, sinful, rebellious life. Picking up in Luke 15, verse 20, we read this. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. We could pause right there. Christian, your, your father always sees you and he always has compassion for you. And I love this part of the story. It says, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Listen, men like the father in this story, in that ancient culture, didn't run. If you're a respectable, successful older man, you don't run. You have people to run for you. You send servants to do your running for you. But this guy does not care. He sees his rebellious son returning in the distance and he takes off running. I want you to picture that. If you leave here today with that picture in your mind, one of my prayers for this week will be accomplished. I'll tell you why in a minute. Can you picture the father running? He's running to the son. The son is looking bad. We know he's in rags. He runs to him. He embraces him. He hugs him. And the son, in verse 21, starts a confession speech. This is how the, the beginning of some of our prayers start. When we're feeling like failures. We start saying things like, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He's been rehearsing in his mind how he's going to grovel when he comes back. Because he knows how sinful he is. He knows he doesn't deserve to be accepted by his father. But I love the fact that the father interrupts him and really is not interested in his groveling at all. It's amazing, the grace of his father. He can't can't finish his speech. Listen to what happens. It says, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand. And shoes on his feet. And bring the fat and calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. That Jesus is saying this is what God is like. When really rebellious, sinful people. Who have dishonored the Lord in a serious way. Come back to him. While they're still a far way off. The father, God, the father runs to them and embraces them. And when we start our groveling confession speeches, God, I know I don't deserve to pray for you. It's like he barely even hears it. He says he's calling on the angels. Let's have a party. Let's celebrate. He came to pray today. That's a powerful parable. That's from the lips of Jesus. Four chapters after he teaches the disciples this prayer. What does he mean by father? That's what he means by father. Listen, the son And that story didn't feel like a son. He didn't feel like a son. He felt like a rebellious fool who didn't even deserve to be called a slave. And at one level, he was kind of right about that. He was a rebellious fool. And he did deserve far worse than what he got. But here's the reality that's so important in the parable. The son's relationship with his father was not determined by his failure or by his subjective feelings of shame. His relationship with his father was determined by the objective reality of the father's unbreakable love. When Jesus says, when you pray, start with the word father. This is what he means. Everybody say father. Now, here's one of my desires for us as a church. Jesus wants us to be a praying people. That when we get on our knees to pray or when we hold hands in a circle to pray or when you're sitting in your car praying while you drive or whatever and the feelings of shame or the feelings that God doesn't love you or that he doesn't hear you start coming up, that you will see in your mind the picture of the father running to his son. If you've been in my house, which a lot of you have, you know, when you walk in on the left, there's a reprint of Rembrandt's famous picture, the return of the prodigal son. And it's got the son looking all nasty and rags with his shoes falling off his feet, looking all dirty. And the father has come and he's embracing him. And I put that picture there because when I walk in my house, I always just want to be reminded that's who God is. That's who God is. And that's what my relationship with God is like. And here's the thing. I want you to picture the father running towards you. So that when you start to feel unworthy, you could say, it doesn't matter what I feel like. It matters what Jesus said. And what Jesus says is the person That you are talking to before you ever got to your knees started running towards you to embrace you And he's ready to kill the fattened calf to celebrate to hear your prayers and when you get on your knees The devil is going to do everything he can whatever demons are on assignment I mean it's probably not like the devil the devil's got better things to do than mess with my prayers But he's got like a lower 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 Person assigned to me Trying to keep me from being able to pray And when that demon doesn't want me to believe that God is my loving father, he's going to do everything that he can to keep me from believing that. And the Holy Spirit in my heart is going to be saying, God is the father running towards you. The blood of Jesus is sufficient for you to pray and to be heard by God. You are an adopted child of God. Cry out, Abba, Father. And here's here's the assignment, church. Your assignment is to join team Holy Spirit, not team devil, which means in your heart, when you feel those thoughts, you've got to say the gospel is true, not my feelings. And what the gospel said is my father loves me and I'm secure. Now, one of the obvious challenges that we face is that many of us come from situations where our earthly fathers have let us down. You many of you here have wounds from being badly treated by your father, a father who abandoned you, a father who abused you. And it can be very difficult for us just at the level of human psychology to disentangle that. And if you have that kind of a background and you start trying to relate to God, you might may find that it's even extra difficult to think about God's love for you because you're projecting I mean, we project our own trauma on God, don't we? We do that. And we start imagining that the father is never going to be pleased with us or satisfied with us, just like our fathers are father figures, or, or at least we perceived it that way. If you were blessed to grow up in a godly home with a godly father, as I was, that's an amazing blessing that that puts you far ahead. But here's what I want to say to you, friends. Even the best father, human father in the history of the world, is like a really faint echo or imitation of the fatherly love of God. And if you struggle with this because of earthly fathers, your heavenly father is so patient with you. He understands that and he's gracious. But what he's trying to say is, if you can imagine the best earthly dad imaginable, that would have been just like a faint, faint echo. In me, you could find love and protection and security. Like nowhere else. So the first word is the most important word, which is why I took half the sermon talking about it. everybody say father. And then Jesus keeps moving. And let's talk for a few moments about these next five little phrases. Some scholars will say there's two declarations followed by three petitions, although I think these are actually five petitions, but. You can buy me coffee and talk about that if you want to get into the nuts and bolts. First thing Jesus says, there's five things you can write them down. The first thing is, hallowed be your name. Let's say that phrase. Everybody say, hallowed be your name. It's the second person imperative. It's, It's saying to God, cause your name to be honored as holy. That's what it means. That's what it means. The name of God is that which signifies God. It's God's reputation. So it's. Effectively saying, God, help everybody everywhere to see how holy you are and to honor you as holy. Now, what is God's holiness? There's a lot of ways we can define it. The scripture uses many different images to express God's holiness to us. But I'm just going to define it by this like this for today. God's holiness is his absolutely unique Transcendent and infinite goodness. Unique. There's no one like God. There's no one like God. He's unique. He's transcendent, which means he's beyond every limitation. He's infinite. But it's his unique and infinite goodness. Everybody say goodness. I say this because sometimes I think when we hear the word holy, um, we, we pick up on the idea that sinners... Um, and in the presence of holiness have a problem. And that's true. What perfect goodness does when it encounters evil is to overcome it, to overthrow it, to devour it. God is a refining fire. That's true. But if that's all that we think of when we think about God's holiness, we're missing so much of what the Bible says about it. For the last few weeks, I've had several different occasions to meditate on Nehemiah chapter eight and in Nehemiah chapter eight, the people of Israel, having just returned from exile, returned to Judah I have come together and they've heard the law of the Lord read and they start mourning and grieving for their sins. And then what's amazing is the leaders of the people stand up and say, don't grieve. Rejoice because today is a holy day. The word holiday, by the way, means holy day. And all those feasts, those holidays are trying to say it's true that sin is a problem. But here's the bigger reality. God's goodness not only means his justice that he's going to overthrow evil, God's goodness means that God is gracious to sinners. It means God is generous, it means God is kind. So when we talk about God's holiness, we're talking about absolutely pure and unique perfect goodness. So the prayer here is basically saying, "Help us God to see how good you are, to taste your sweetness." And then to respond by honoring your goodness with our words and our attitudes and our actions. This can be a personal prayer. God, sometimes I struggle to see your goodness. I don't want to fall into sin. I don't want to go after lesser things. Help me to see your goodness. This can be a prayer for your children. Our kids need prayer, don't they? It's a blessing to be a kid with praying parents. Sometimes our prayers might be focused on their physical health or maybe some behaviors that they're doing that we're concerned about. But wouldn't it be a great prayer if we labored in prayer for our kids? God, help each one of my kids to see your goodness, to see how sweet you are, so that they'll want to honor your goodness with their words and actions. This can be a missional prayer. This is about all the nations coming to worship God and honor him when When all the world sees the goodness of God, the world will be healed. Peace and justice will triumph in the earth. Hallowed be your name. And then he says, your kingdom come. Everybody say, your kingdom come. This is like saying, God, let your power break into the world through Jesus and the Holy Spirit to drive out evil and set things right. Throughout our study of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has taught us a lot About the nature of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the power of God. It's the reign of God. It's the rule, the authority of God breaking into the world to renew creation and to drive out evil. And wherever Jesus is, the kingdom of God has come. So, for example, in Luke 11, verse 20, a little bit later in this chapter some people are going to wrongly accuse Jesus. They're going to slander him and say he's casting out demons by demonic power that he's going to say, no, that's not what's happening and give them a sharp warning. But he's going to say, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. What does that mean? Wherever the presence of Jesus is bodily or through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, there is the kingdom of God. And the coming of the kingdom of God means the coming of the power of God to drive out evil and set things right. Now, the ultimate coming of the kingdom of God will mean Jesus returning in glory to judge evil and usher in the new heavens and the new earth. So at one level, this line, your kingdom come means Jesus come back quickly. Aren't you looking forward to the day when Jesus sets the whole world right? As Christians, we need to learn how to pray like that. But also, your kingdom come can be a prayer about smaller inbreakings of the kingdom of God. God, I see this evil in my neighborhood. I see this brokenness in my family. We're encountering this attack from the enemy in our church. God, send your spirit with power to drive out the evil and to set things right. Hallowed be your name, Jesus teaches us to pray. Your kingdom come. And then he says, give us each day our daily bread. Everybody say daily bread. Means very simply provide for us everything that we need. Give us what we need to live. At our community group this last week on Thursday, we were reflecting on the fact that if we're honest as Christians, several of us in the group said we want to trust God to provide for us, but we would prefer for him to give us our annual bread. Like, give me this year my yearly bread. On January 1st, give me everything I'm going to need for the next 12 months. Can anybody relate to that? Or at least, how about weekly bread? Weekly bread would be a step up, right? But he says, give us this day our daily bread. This phrase is, of course, evoking the story of God providing manna for the children of Israel in the wilderness. And he just gave them enough for one day. And if they thought, you know what? Who knows what's going to happen tomorrow? I'm going to gather up a week's worth of manna then the next morning that stuff would be nasty. There'd be maggots and it'd be gross because they were trusting what God provided instead of trusting God. Except for there was one exception. The day before the Sabbath, they were supposed to gather for two days and it would stay good and not go bad. Through this little miracle of manna, Jesus was teaching his people, I don't want you to trust my gifts. I want you to trust me. Listen, some of us, When we're secretly talking to God and we're not trying to sound really holy in our public church prayers might do things like pray. God, give me $10 million. I won't ask you to raise your hand on that. That is not daily bread. That's not annual bread. That's some larger unit of time. It depends on your spending patterns. And listen, it may be the case that God is going to bless some of you with significant wealth. And if he he does... That wealth is a tool that you can use to bless people. But first Timothy six warns us that if God gives us that particular blessing and stewardship, it comes with certain temptations. And the big temptation here is now I'm going to trust the wealth instead of trusting God. And I'm, I'm really thankful for some resource partners that partner with many of the ministries we do. We couldn't do what we do at the medical clinic or with. St. Paul's Community School or with the church, if it wasn't for people that God had blessed with resources because he was entrusting them to steward them for his kingdom. Personally, knowing my own weakness, I'm kind of glad that I've had to pray for daily bread and mean it kind of literally a lot of times in my life. You guys have been taking good care of us. I'm praying for monthly bread these days. I mean, I'm praying for daily bread and getting monthly bread. Thank you for that. Appreciate it. Um, But there's been times where it was like, no, daily bread. And one of the things that that teaches you is If God only gives me for today and then I got to pray again tomorrow, he shows up every day. He showed up yesterday. Anybody want to testify? God showed up yesterday in your life. What about the day before that? What about the day before that? Jesus is saying, learn to trust the father every day. You don't need an abundance of resources. And if he gives it to you, watch out for the temptation of trusting them instead of trusting your father. Give us each day our daily bread. bring, Bring to God your needs. Jesus is saying, then he says, and forgive us our sins. As we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Everybody say, forgive us. This part of the prayer reminds us that we need forgiveness more than we need bread. Bread. You and I were made to know God. We were made to enjoy a relationship with God. and He loves us. He wants us to enjoy that relationship with him. It's on his heart. The only thing that can possibly hinder it is our sin. So Jesus says, teaches us to pray, forgive us our sins. And he words this. He adds that second line. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. He words this prayer in such a way that it would be really reckless to pray it if you're holding a grudge against somebody that you're unwilling to forgive. I mean, think about that for a second. There's somebody who's hurt you and they've really hurt you and you're holding a grudge. You think I can forgive everybody else, but not this person. I got I got to hold on to my anger towards this person. And then you come to God and say, God, forgive me just like I forgive everyone who's wronged me. That sounds like a good idea. G- Jesus words the prayer in this way to teach us that forgiveness is a crucial, essential part of our spiritual lives. We need forgiveness every day. We need grace every day. God gives it to us every day. And part of receiving that is learning to extend it to others. And I, I find myself often on my knees, getting to this line of the prayer and then thinking is there anybody that i'm holding a grudge towards and just releasing it to god and if there's somebody that it comes to mind sometimes i'll ask the holy spirit show me if there's somebody that i have bitterness towards sometimes i'll bring somebody to mind and i'll just pray i forgive that person i'll start praying for god to bless that person and sometimes i have to say i want to forgive that person i declare that i forgive that person but i'm still feeling angry holy spirit change my heart give them the same grace that i need and give me grace You can get saved. You can become a Christian praying the Lord's Prayer. In fact, one of my spiritual mentors, my friend Dave Edwards, who pastored in Norman for many years, that was his testimony. He grew up in church. He was in a denomination that didn't preach the gospel very much, but they did say the Lord's Prayer every week. And much later in his life, God was beginning to work in his life. He was beginning to see how beautiful Jesus was and to understand his own sin. And he wanted to have a relationship with God and he wanted to start to pray. But he didn't know how to pray. So he just said this prayer. And his testimony 50 years later was when I got to the line where it said, forgive us of our, forgive us of our sins. I meant it. And Jesus saved me that day. That was the only thing he knew how to pray. You can become, you can be saved. You can become a Christian by praying this prayer. But. This is a prayer that is actually given to people who are already committed disciples of Jesus. And what it's telling us is that messing up and then coming to God for forgiveness is a daily part of discipleship. It's a regular part of discipleship. Here's the thing. When you sin, Christian, God does not stop loving you and he doesn't kick you out of his family. God does not stop loving you and he does, doesn't kick you out of his family. Ooh, that's so I just got excited. Somebody should have said amen to that. OK, there we go. God does not stop loving you. And God doesn't kick you out of his family. That makes me so happy just to think about it. But that doesn't change the fact that sin is a problem. What, what is the problem for us? Sin. If I'm living in sin, that hinders my fellowship with God. The best part of my life is intimate relationship with God. But my sin hinders that intimacy. It also hinders me from experiencing the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit that God wants to unleash in my life. And it opens doors for the forces of evil to gain influence in my life. So when I come to God and I'm saying, forgive us our sins, I'm saying, take away my sin so that I can enjoy intimate fellowship with you, Father. Take away my sins so I can experience the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit that you want to unleash in my life. And take away my sins so the spiritual forces of evil have no space to gain influence in my life and in my family. Forgive us of our sins as we forgive our debtors. Interesting that Jesus used the word debtor there, by the way. In Luke chapter six, he said to his disciples, lend, expecting nothing in return. I think he uses this word debtor here. To indicate to us that our grace, the grace that should flow out of us as the people of the gospel extends to forgiveness and to a practice of radical generosity towards other people. Finally, he says, lead us not into temptation. All right. This, this one is simple. Church family, have you found that the world is filled with many temptations? Have you found that you are strong enough to battle those temptations? No, <laughs> no, not in our own strength. So the prayer ends... Basically by saying, God, I'm too weak to resist the temptations I encounter in life. I can't even resist the little ones in my own strength, but I know life brings big ones. So, God, I cannot finish my life trusting and walking with you apart from your enabling grace. Today and every day of my life, give me strength, give me grace, keep away the temptations, keep me close to you. I don't want to sin against you. I don't want to dishonor you, God. Spiritually immature baby Christians tend to feel very confident in their own willpower. Spiritually mature saints tend to be deeply conscious of their own weakness and their own daily dependence upon God's grace. All right, let's step back. We walked through the prayer. I want to finish today with a few thoughts. Let's just return to this reality. This prayer that Jesus taught his disciples is only made possible by what Jesus did for us through his cross and resurrection. Everything about this prayer our capacity to see the goodness of God the the power of the kingdom to come liberate us from spiritual forces of evil the covenant relationship with God we enjoy So that we constantly experience his forgiveness and his physical and spiritual help. All of that was made possible by what Jesus did in dying on the cross for our sins and rising again. And when we put our faith in Jesus and we're baptized into the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, we're united with Christ so that this relationship is secure. The devil doesn't want us to believe that because if we believe that we'll pray big prayers of faith based on what Jesus did, and God will answer our prayers. The devil does not want that. So the devil is very interested, the demonic forces in our lives are very interested in partnering up with our own psychological fixations, our own fill of shame and whatever else we got going on in our life, to make us feel like God doesn't want to hear our prayers. But Jesus is saying, you can pray because of what he has done and because God is your father. So when you get on your knees this week to pray, what are you going to picture, church? I'm going to assume that all that mumbling was you saying the father running towards you. Picture the father running towards you. You're not going to want to believe that's what's happening. But the Holy Spirit inside of you is going to be crying, Abba, Father. And don't you dare think that it's humble to join Team Devil and think, oh, I've got to grovel for a while before God hears me. If that was true, then every answered prayer would be the result of your righteousness. But the truth is, your answered prayers, when God answers your prayer, is the result of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the Lord. So even if you're coming to the Lord, filling a total spiritual wreck, the Father is running towards you. The Spirit is crying out, Abba, Father. And Jesus is teaching you, when you pray, say, Father. And everything else flows from that place of security. Here's what I want to do. We'll end by praying the prayer together. And then... After we pray this prayer, the worship team can come lead us in one more song to worship our God. But I want to invite you just to bow your heads for a moment. I'm actually going to invite you to stand up while you're bowing your heads. And if you'd be willing, put your hands in a posture of receiving as we usually do at this point in the service. Just open before the Lord. And all I'm going to do is read the prayer. And pause after each line. As we pause, give you a moment to pray in your heart. To God, according to this pattern that Jesus has taught us. Father. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins as we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation God, we thank you for your presence here with us today, for what you've done in this place and what you've done with Children's Church and with Spanish-speaking folks gathered in the chapel. We thank you for your unfailing love, and I pray that the word that we've heard today would continue to rest in our hearts, that it would germinate and grow deep roots in us, and over time would bear the fruit of praying lives. Would you make us a praying people who deeply know you as our Father? Who have learned from Jesus to be authentically human by living in constant communion with you. It's in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen. Amen.